As you can see this morning, we're going to be in Romans 8, um, page 1200 in your pew Bibles, where you can read along the screen. Um, as I got dressed this morning, I forgot my belt. And I was thinking about how God works. And, uh, but I do have the belt of truth holding me together. And uh, there is a belt of truth in this passage that if we understand it and really believe it, it will hold us together. It's rich. So let's feast on this bread of the word of life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Word of God. Let me start by asking you a question, and that is, how valuable is your faith to you? That is, if it was threatened or you were threatened uh, to give it up, how, f- how valuable is it to you? What would be the price that you would be willing to pay in which to either keep it or be willing to sell it? Another way to think of it is, is if, if you had something really valuable and you dropped it in the sewer, at what level of that value would it have to be before you go after it? That is, obviously, many of us have dropped money and it has gone down uh, the sewer. And if it's a quarter, I'm pretty much letting it go. If it's my wedding ring, either I've got to get it replaced by the time I get home or I'm going in. (laughs) And that might be true for some of you as well. On this whole idea of how valuable is your faith? Is it your treasure? Is it something that you're willing, as the parable says, that you would sell everything you have in order to purchase it, if that was even possible? Ravi Zacharias tells a story that I think is helpful to understand the value of our faith. He tells a story of a Bible translator, a, a, a man who translated for English-speaking missionaries in Vietnam. He was Vietnamese, Theo uh, Phong. And uh, Phong would uh, hear these messages by 
by missionaries in Vietnam, and he would translate it from English into Vietnamese. And one of the people he would do that for was Ravi Zacharias. But he did it for many others. And uh, it was against the law. And so when uh, he was finally caught translating the gospel uh, for some missionaries uh, from the, the United Kingdom, he was arrested and he was imprisoned and he was part of a deprogramming uh, uh, effort by the Vietnamese to get Christians to abandon their faith. And they would do that by, first of all, taking their Bible away and not allowing them to pray. And I don't know how you completely stop that, but that's the idea behind it. And they would replace the Bible with documents written by Marx and Lenin and other uh, communist leaders to deprogram uh, this uh, translator who was a believer, a follower of Jesus. And... At one point, after years of being in this reindoctrination camp, he began to question his faith. Was it for real? Did God abandon me? Why is this happening to me and to my family? Because he would be parted all this time from his wife and children. And, and so they, he began to stop praying and thinking that, well, if God is not hearing my prayers, I'm not going to waste praying. And so one of the things they would do to demoralize their imprisoned uh, uh, political prisoners is they would have them do menial, uh, horrible, uh, grotesque tasks. And his particular assigned one day was to clean the officer's latrine. And don't think of a latrine as the hundred and some odd bathrooms here. Think of it as a hole in the ground or a bucket in a closet. And that's what he had to do. He had to clean these uh, buckets full of human waste. And he went into one of these rooms and he found a bucket. And in that bucket, as he's cleaning it out, he finds a piece of paper. As he notices on this piece of paper, all he could read was the top identification of the piece of paper, and it was Romans 8. And so he very carefully uh, washes the paper and cleans it off, and he can begin to read Romans 8.28. For those who love God, God works all things for good. He could, he could read Romans uh uh, uh, 30 and 38, where it says uh, that neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so he, his faith, first he repents of doubting that God can provide for him even in a place like this. And so he asked the officers who gave out assignments if it would be okay with them that he would clean the latrines every day. Because in hopes, and it evidently turned out to be so, that every day or every so often somebody would leave another page of the Bible for him to clean and to treasure. You see, what is your faith worth to you? For some... Not much. But for those who have been transformed by the gospel, it's not something 
it is everything, and by which everything can be seen. How far would you go? One man's toilet paper is another man's treasure. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he wrote his series on the book of Romans that he delivered over a seven-year period, 14 volumes are the collection of his messages. And when he gets to chapter 8, he says this, Romans 8 is the greatest chapter ever written. He doesn't say that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. He says Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in human history ever to be written. Because in it contains all of the themes for life. Bach will write a whole cantata based on Romans 8. N.T. Wright, who is a, a pastor and a commentator, said Romans 8 is the feast of all the Pauline themes that carries the power of the gospel in every breath. He says if the church could hoist its sails, now you know this is going to mean a lot to Annapolis, if the church could hoist its sails and catch this wind, there's no knowing what might happen. Today we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit by His power changes us because we want to be changed. The beauty of the gospel is this. That God accepts you and loves you wherever you are. But the God who sends His Holy Spirit to indwell in us never leaves us where we are. That's how much He loves us. He doesn't love us enough to just merely accept us. He loves us enough to bring us from where we are to where we are like Christ. And so that requires change. Next week, we're going to talk about what that change looks like by looking at the fruit of the Spirit. But today, we just want to know, who is it that causes the change? How do we really change? And so, I've broken this passage into uh, three things that we're given that change us. And without this first one, the other two won't happen. That is that you and I need a nature change. We need something profoundly about us to radically change. That's not true just individually. We tend to apply it individually, and that's true. But our whole culture, our whole nation, our whole world needs a nature change. And it's promised in chapter 8. We're not going to cover that passage, but if you will read the rest of Romans 8, you will see that the world is groaning for you. Because when you have received your redemption, the world will be redeemed. But until then, let's just talk about us. Verse 11 says this. So having the end in mind, we're going to start at the end and move back toward the beginning. If the spirit of him, talking about Jesus, if the spirit of Jesus, I mean of God, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also... Give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Please note what he's saying here is that the spirit of God 
who raised Jesus from the dead, that same power resides in you and gives life to your mortal bodies. That is, there's a spiritual life that is given to you through the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't get it on your own. There's no uh, Walmart. There's no specialty store you can go to, no Christian bookstore that you can get the Holy Spirit. It is given by God to dwell in us in order to give us life. And I want you to understand that means that there are levels or complexities to life on earth. What I mean by that is you and I know that plants and human beings aren't the same thing. Plants have the ability to look at its environment or or understand its environment, process its environment only at a certain level. That is, it's not as complex because it only can deal with light and heat and water. And that's the level by which plants deal with its with its environment. And so it's processing in a very simple, obviously better way than rocks, but at least plants process at that basic level. To move up, we know that animals process at a greater level, at a more complexity with processing its environment than plants do. We know that because God has given all animals five senses. They can see and they can uh, hear and they can taste and touch. They've got the, the ability to, to uh, understand their environment at a much greater complexity than plants can. But there's a limitation to animals, right? Because they react to their environment. They respond to their environment based on instinct. They're not reasoning. They're not working it through. Hey, here's plan A. Here's plan B. I've got a choice here. You take a piece of red meat and put it in front of a lion, or you take a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you put it in front of the same lion, a hundred out of a hundred times, he, he dodges the peanut butter and jelly and he eats the meat. Why? Because it's his instinct. He's carnivorous, and so carnivorous animals do not choose peanut butter and jelly. To the chagrin of all children, they always choose the red meat. I think that's important for us to understand that even animals, though they're more complex than plants, they're less complex than human beings. Because human beings are given the same five senses than animals, but we can process our environment because of reason at a much greater complexity and more depth than animals can. For instance, you and I, because we're human beings, not only have the five senses, but we can respond to injustice. We actually recognize injustice and can do something about it. And even to look at something that happened down in uh, South Florida and say, that is wrong. We cannot continue to send children to school and have their lives taken from them and from their families. We can understand right and wrong. We know that. Something is good and and true and beautiful, and we know something that is not. We can distinguish between the truth and a lie. We can distinguish between beauty and ugly. Those are things animals cannot do. 
But one more complexity, and this is a controversial one that our text teaches us. That human beings are limited to. Because there is a perception of reality that they cannot see apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is, there's another higher life form. And I don't mean that in a superiority. I'm just talking about your ability to process the environment in which we live. And if you're a human being filled by the Holy Spirit, you have a complexity to you that other human beings don't have because you're able now, because of the Holy Spirit, to perceive your environment in a way that other human beings who are not filled with the Holy Spirit cannot see. But not only are you awakened to realities that you didn't see before, you're beginning to embrace God's ways in, in the ways in which you once hated to do. But not only do you now love that which you once hated, but you now hate what you once loved. The way that this passage will talk about the way of the flesh versus the way of the spirit. That is, you're beginning to hate sin and love the way of the spirit. This is now a power in you that allows you to process the world in a different way. To begin to make sense out of the spiritual part of our world that was totally oblivious to us before. That the only way that we could approach the things that were going on in our lives, in the lives of our community, in the life of our community, in the life of our nation, the life of the, the world was only through this limited five senses and reason. Now, as a follower of Jesus, you are able to not only do that, but also process the world through spiritual eyes. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, not only because the Holy Spirit has given me eyes to see it, but also through it, I see everything else. That is, not only are you saved by the gospel, but the gospel becomes a paradigm by which you see the world. And that makes you a more complex life form than you once were before you knew Christ. Another way to say it is, I'm woke. I am woke to suffering. I see suffering differently than I did before. It has a whole new dimension to my thinking. That is, I don't agree any longer with Macbeth. My life is not a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Now it has a purpose, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. I'm going somewhere. I'm not just part of the circle of life that is doomed to repeat over and over again. But also agree with Romans 5 that we rejoice, we Christians, even in suffering, because suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. Do you hear what he's saying there? That having the Holy Spirit awakens you to begin to see your own suffering and the suffering in this world differently 
because there's something behind it and it's taking us somewhere. The suffering is evil, but God is using the evil for good in order to make all things new. But I'm not just awoke to suffering. I'm awoke to the wisdom of the Bible. That is, what seemed impossible to understand about the Bible. And if you haven't gotten there, it's because you just hadn't read it yet. But if you sit down and decide that this year you're going to read the Bible, I can promise you there are going to be parts of it that are going to be either difficult to understand or difficult to accept. And imagine, if you didn't have the Holy Spirit, how difficult it would be to understand. To understand the story that all the other stories fit up under? Or just simply to understand that it's moving toward an end without the Holy Spirit? And for those of us who have the Holy Spirit, it is still difficult. Passages that we still don't fully understand. I can remember when I went to to seminary, I did not grow up in the, the church, and so I didn't know much about the Bible. I didn't read the Bible much until I got into college and and um, went off to seminary. And I knew the story of Jonah was in the Bible somewhere. But I did not know there was a book of Jonah until I went to seminary and took Old Testament. Can you imagine? That's what the Holy Spirit does. It opens not just the facts of the Bible but the story of the Bible that changes everything, not just about me, but the way in which I see the world. But I'm also woke to Christian life as an implication of the gospel. I don't see the gospel as merely as a door into salvation, but it's the whole ball of wax, and it has implications for the way I live, the way I, I, I deal with my own sin, but the way I deal with yours as well. But I'm also woke to people who belong to Christ. The wall between Gentiles and Jews have been broken down. And that means, and that means that I have more in common with someone of, of less means, less education, less cultural and racial background than mine. I have more in common with them who are Christians than I do with people that are just like me who are not. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones, I quoted him a little earlier, that had the 14 volumes on Romans 8. And he talks about his life. When he, he was a younger man, he was a physician, he was the royal family uh, doctor. And uh, later he felt called into the ministry. And the first place they gave this intellectual was the, the fisherman's coast of Wales. And after being there for several years, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. I feel more kindred in Christ with a poor fisherman on the shores of Wales in my church than with the elites I know in London. You see, the only thing that can do that is the indwelling Holy Spirit that allows all of us who are from different backgrounds, different educational levels, different experiences, different ethnic groups, different races, to all be in the same church. You see, I I don't believe that the gospel cannot heal racial reconciliation. I believe that the gospel is powerful enough to make this predominantly white church less so.
I believe the gospel is powerful enough that people who don't share our upward middle class, incredibly educated culture to have people in it who are not so. And they be as valued and loved and in leadership as those who have all of the education, all of the finances, all the resources that come would be in an upper mobile and upper middle class white person. If the gospel can't do that, then you and I might as well give up and go home. Because God never meant his church to be this white. And not this educated. That doesn't mean we become anti-intellectual. That would be the wrong application. It just means that the gospel can bridge that too. Just like he bridged it to our hearts, he can bridge it to places that you and I think we cannot go. Where we think the gospel can go, but on someone else who can reach across the aisle. But I'm not just awoke to Christians. I'm also woke to people who are outside the church. There's a compassionate concern for those without Christ. I want to have Romans 9 and Romans 10 as my heart too. Paul has written this tremendous uh, theology and he gets to Romans 9 and he says, you know what? I wish my people, Jews, could believe this gospel too. I would rather be damned if they could be saved. Wouldn't that be a great heart of that much compassion? I'm not saying God would take your salvation in order that they might be saved. It it just shows his heart has been so radically changed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that he has such a compassion for those who don't know Jesus that his whole life has been radically changed to to make sure they at least hear the gospel. You and I, some of us, have been in li- living in this community for more than 10 years. And shame on us if the people of Annapolis don't know Christ. If we've been given 10 years to do anything, pretty much this church can do it. Save saving someone. We certainly can make sure everybody in Annapolis... Everybody in, in Anne Arundel County has heard the gospel. That can't be too much to ask. This new nature is the way in which we see everyone and everything. Let me tell you a story about Liz real quick, and then I've got to go on to our ambition. Well, I've got to go on to that anyway. Liz is a, a high school student in our, in our ministry. Uh, and she came to Christ last semester, and um, she will quickly say that her relationship uh, with her father's in pieces. It's just broken. And so she searched all of these verses in the Bible on uh, forgiveness. And she says, I can't get there from here. There's just so many broken pieces. But do you hear that the Holy Spirit has given her a desire to see the healing. Even if he doesn't heal it in this life, we have the promise that he will make all things new, including that brokenness. 
And that gives us this new ambition, this new passion, this new desire, because we have a new nature. Because the Spirit indwells in us, we have an ambition to be more proactive of our own holiness and more aggressive against our own sinfulness. How? Look at verse 3 and 4. I am sending Jesus to condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He begins to set up this contrast that that there, there are people who walk according to the flesh and there are people who walk according to the Spirit. And here's the good news. If you are in Christ, you are already walking in the Spirit. That does not mean that you don't from time to time get amnesia of where you're supposed to be walking and you begin to do the deeds of the flesh again. But it does mean that when I find you, when we have this in common, it's not about you leaving the flesh and coming to the Spirit. You are already there if you're in Christ. Verse 6, he says, The mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. In fact, according to verse 9, he says, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Why? To give you this new mindset. But the big thing is to get is he's not an occasional visitor. He's never will get out of your system. Another way to think of him is he's an incurable virus that is taking over the entire body. He's an unstoppable being. And he is taking leadership of your life, even if you don't want it. And next week we'll look at that that produces a fruit in your life of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we call that what? Sanctification. That's how we grow quickly, just the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification was at the very beginning of verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, you have nothing any longer to be ashamed of. Nothing any longer to be guilty over. Because that has been given to Christ. That does not mean we don't try to bring it back. That doesn't mean we don't try to live under that same guilt and shame, but you don't have to wear that because it has already been received by Jesus and taken care of at the cross. And that has allowed God to declare you acceptable to Him. And that is true on your best day, and that is true on your worst day. Because you have been declared righteous, you have been declared acceptable, and you have been declared blameless. And justification starts the process of sanctification. That is, according to the rest of Romans 8, later on, it'll say it's like a golden chain. That those that have been called will be justified. And those that are justified will be sanctified. It can't be stopped. Because the Spirit dwells in you. And if this begins, your greatest pleasure then becomes being led by the Spirit. And you know that because you're finally being and doing what you're designed to be and to do. Not perfectly, but that's your pleasure. 
That's your new ambition. Every now and then, amnesia robs you of your memory of who you now are, and therefore your deeds are not in line with who you are, but it doesn't change who you are. And therefore, if you are having the Holy Spirit, then sin nauseates you the way fried food does. Romans 7 says, wretched man that I am, who will separate me from this body of death? Paul is saying, look, I do that which I don't want to do. Who's going to rescue me from this? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and begins Roman 8 with there is therefore now no uh, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is so tuned into the love of God for him. He is nauseated by his sin. And may God make us all nauseated by our sin so that we will hold on to his love, to his forgiveness. That's what Paul said. I mean, David says, the adulterer, the murderer in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite a spirit you will not despise, creating me a clean heart. O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice what David doesn't say. He doesn't say, restore my salvation. He says, restore the joy of my salvation or your salvation. That is, he always has his salvation. But the joy sometimes is robbed by our amnesia of who we are. And all the way through, from the moment that we are justified to the moment that we're glorified, through every moment of sanctification, we have completely covered. We are covered. Because we are constantly betraying and adoring Christ. We're not one or the other. And in sanctification, we need a covering. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. We are attracted to righteousness because we are righteous in Christ. We are covered. That's what that in Christ, it's Paul's uh, uh, euphemism or Paul's reduction of the gospel that you who are Christians are covered in the righteousness of Christ and his shorthand is in Christ. The most repeated phrase in all of Ephesians. Paul's favorite phrase for your union with Christ. You remember the time when you used to dress up like your father's clothes or your mother's clothes and, and they were too big for you to wear and the shoes were clopping around. You were always coming out of those shoes and you would dream one day, I'm going to fit these things. Doesn't that make you think a little bit about the righteousness that's covering you? It just doesn't fit. That is, it's too big. But this is what you need to know. That your trajectory is set. You're on your way to becoming like Christ. Because it's not your work. It's the work of the Spirit in you. This is what Rankin Wilburn, who wrote a book called Union with Christ, said. God does not love you to the degree that you are like Christ. God loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And then he says, and that is always 100%. 
That is, God is as pleased with you on your very worst and most rebellious day as he is with you on your best and most faithful day. But until I grow into Jesus' shoes, I am covered. Quick quote from Bono, because I know you want to hear about you too. He says this, your nature is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I have heard of people who have had life-changing, miraculous turnarounds, people who have been set free from addictions after a single prayer. And we all know people like that. But it was not like that for me. For all the I was lost and now I'm found, it was probably more accurate to say I was really lost and now I'm a little less so. And then a little less so. And then a little less. This is the spiritual life for me, the slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals, reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me into a better image. It has taken years, and it is not over yet. Imagine, from God's perspective, us trying to wear Jesus' clothes and to fit into Jesus' shoes. And the only thing that allows us in the presence is the covering. Jesus was the ultimate prisoner. He was the ultimate person who dove into the latrine of this world to retrieve the treasure that was there, you. He pulled us out and washed us off, and then he added us to his collection which started what will be finished. Paul will write, I am confident of this, that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. That is good news. And what better news could you or I have than that? That no matter what we face in this world, no matter how much sorrow has come into our life, how much struggle we've had with sin, in the end, we are going to be like Jesus. And nothing, including me, can stop it. Because he started it. And he's going to finish it. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these, your dear people who love you and are, more importantly, loved by you. And because you started this, you will bring it to completion. We need those eyes. When we see our friends who are struggling, we need to see that eventually, even if it's not our time or their time, you will will bring it to completion. And until then, we are all covered. We thank you that you are as pleased by us because we are in Christ on our worst day as we are in our, on our best day because we are completely covered by the righteousness of Christ. He lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died in our place. And because of that, you have given us the spirit in which we welcome today to change us, to give us a new nature, to give us new ambitions, and to keep us covered until we are like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.